Let's be honest, Rome requires no introduction or recommendation. The Italian capital is home to an unrivaled collection of astounding attractions and antiquities, helping make it one of Europe's most captivating destinations. If you're anything like me, though, when you visit Rome, you're just as concerned about eating great food as you are about seeing the sights. So who better to help guide us through the city's food scene than longtime resident Kenny Dunn, the founder of the renowned food tour company Eating Europe. During our conversation, Kenny shares his advice for having great Roman food experiences, serving up plenty of personal recommendations regarding pizza, coffee, and late night bites. He also offers insider advice on some slightly lesser known things to do, and even a couple of great ideas for day trips from the city. Well, I hope you're hungry, because it's time to go to Rome. Let's welcome in to Rails, Ales, and Old Towns, coming to you live from Rome, Kenny Dunn, founder of Eating Europe Food Tours. Hey, Scott. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Longtime admirer of Eating Europe and everything you've done. So it's good we can finally connect. And like you said, I'm here in Rome where the sun is shining as it usually is, which is definitely one of my favorite parts about living in this city. Yeah, I was going to ask you because, I mean, you've been synonymous with Rome now for, you know, it's about 12 years you've lived there? Actually, I always seem to reduce it, but it's actually been 14 years. I did the math. I did the complicated math not too long ago, and that's what I came up with. You've been there 14 years, but the love is still strong. The fire's, fire's still burning bright. You know, over 14 years... It's funny, like you live in a place uh, for this long that isn't your home. You know, you go through these different kind of phases. The first phase is everything is so exciting. You just want to try and devour everything in the city as well as in, in Italy and even beyond in Europe. Then that kind of fades a little bit. Then sometimes it kind of reignites. I'd say... I don't know if it's COVID. I feel like COVID changed a lot, but coming out of COVID, I'm just had this kind of hunger to start traveling within Italy, to discover new places within the city itself. And so, yeah, I think I'm going through this new peak where my love for Rome and, and Italy more broadly is definitely at one of its strongest. Well, I'm glad I'm catching you on the upswing. Yeah, definitely. What, so what are some of those like pinch me moments that you get when you're walking around thinking like, I can't believe I live here? Yeah, I think they happen in different times. I mean, for me, so I live in a neighborhood called Trastevere, which is a very popular area. I'm kind of on the quiet side away from all the madness. But um, I don't go into what's the, the centro, the historic center that much, even though it's like a 20 minute walk. But the good side about not going in that much, when I do, even though I've been living here for so long, when I do, it's one of those moments is just kind of getting lost, as all tourists do and all tourists love doing, um, in, you know, in the little streets, in the in the historic center. Usually at night, that's when I find Rome is kind of most magical. Um and it's just kind of, you know, getting lost, even though ultimately kind of realizing, ah, here's where I am. But there's those little moments where I'm like, where am I? I don't remember ever being in this little alley. 
And so that that happens oftentimes when I when I head into the center. You know, Rome's famous for its seven hills. I live just at the bottom of its eighth and second tallest, uh, Monte Verde. And a lot of times I'm walking my dog at night, coming down the hill as the sun's setting. And though that's always as many times, you know, the sun sets every day here in Rome. We have beautiful ones here, pink and purples. And I'm just like, wow, this city is gorgeous. You know, because you see from Monteverde, I'm across the river from, you know, the historic center. And so you see all of that stuff in the distance, you know, the Pantheon and the Colosseum. And and, um, and so the, that's one of those moments. And then, of course, being a big food guy, I mean, so many times where I'm just eating something somewhere in like uh, kind of even just like a nondescript Roman trattoria and, you know, just being surprised by how good something tastes. And those are the moments where, where I'm like, wow, this it's is still, it still happened. The, mo- the <laughs> movie hasn't happened. ended. Yeah. I mean, it's fun. In the beginning, of course, it happens more because everything now, you know, the bar has been elevated quite a bit. You know, but, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, I just went there. It's good. I'm like, eh, it's not that great. <laughs> you know, but because I am not that I'm snobby, but, you know, I mean, it takes more to wow me. But those wow moments do happen. I don't know. You know, maybe it's once a month, sometimes a bit more, sometimes a bit less. But yeah, so those, those are the other pinch me moments food related. Now, the uh, hill you spoke about there, because the last time I was in Rome, we stayed in Trastevere. And it was actually okay. the first the first time I had, had stayed there. I loved it. I loved it. So you're lucky. Really cool to be living there. But yeah, the first night we scampered up to the hill there with Janiculum Hill? Uh, Janiculo, yeah. So Monte Verde is the neighborhood. Janiculo is the name of the hill. Caught the sunset right as it was going down. Now, this was December, so it was nice and quiet. I can imagine how fun that is walking a dog up there and then trotting back down past the fountain and yeah, that fountain is gorgeous. I mean, um, yeah, which is nice. I mean, right now, I mean, you know, in terms of travel tips, like right now, here we are in kind of early Feb, every day's been sunny, which isn't that atypical um, for, for this time of year. And, you know, the city is so much more quiet still great to be outside at night it's cold and so if you have Rome at this time of year when a neighborhood like Trastevere isn't so packed it's not so hard to get a table somewhere you don't have to wait in crazy lines to get in the Colosseum or the Vatican or any of the other most popular attractions so I whenever I see people who are here now and the weather's good I'm like man this is such a great time to you know, you don't need anyone to tell you to go to the Coliseum, the Pantheon, Spanish Steps, oh, sure. the Trevi Fountain. Figured I'd ask you, you know, if you had a couple just must-sees, but they're just not that known. One of them is this one place. I've only been there a couple times, but I was really impressed. And I just, it's called Domus Valentini. Domus is the Latin word for house or home. So it's an ancient Roman house you know, of a wealthy Roman, you know, so 2000 plus years old. But what's really cool is, you know, it's pretty well intact, but the parts that aren't intact, they actually have used 
digital imaging. So, so you look at a room and, you know, there's a mosaic on the ceiling and the remains of, let's say, what was a bath. And, you know, you appreciate it. And then all of a sudden they just, it's not a projection, but it's kind of the best way to describe it. Project what it would look like as it did and, you know, as it would have, you know, 2000 years ago. So that I found that super cool. So it's kind of like, you know, you're in a place that's 2000 years old, but you're using modern technology to kind of fill in the gaps, let's say. So that that's a place I always recommend, you know, a little less off the beaten path, but I think still not a lot of people go and it's quite worthwhile is Giardino de Ananche, the um, orange garden that's on the Aventine Hill. It's, you know, a little garden that has this unbelievable lookout. So you're on the, not on the side that I'm on, but on the side where Rome was first formed. You look out on the Vatican, on Janicolo Hill that we were just talking about. And I didn't know this until very recently, but the way the cypress trees were planted, it creates this effect where you look out and you can see the dome of the Vatican and it looks really big because of how these trees are. And as you walk closer to the edge, to the terrace that overlooks the city, the dome shrinks tremendously. So it's an unbelievable optical illusion that's really cool. So it's this beautiful place. It's got this very cool effect. And then it's just rewards you with this incredible view. You know, like I said, the like we talked about just watching the sunset from... Uh, the top of the Janicolo Hill, I think, is another area that a lot of people don't visit. Right there is um, Villa Pamphili, which is one of my favorite parks. So all the parks are called villas. That's really nice. So you could go for a picnic late in the afternoon, then watch the sunset. I think you share a similar enjoyment of just savoring a city skyline when you actually can get up higher, see the whole city, it gives you a really nice perspective. And that's the one thing that's interesting about Rome. You know, when you're in the historic center, it's a lot of very small, obviously small streets like any ancient city. And so that's a great perspective, but you don't really get to see the size and everything. So you go across the river, you get up to the second highest point, and then you can appreciate things, you know, in kind of a more macro sense. The other thing I would say, I mean, Rome, a lot of people don't realize this, but you're, you know, about a 30 minute train ride to the beach, you know, going out there, having lunch, just looking at the water. I mean, the, you know, the whole coast is just one beach town after the next. And uh, all of them have restaurants with amazing fresh fish and calamari. And, you know, so to go out there and have a nice Saturday or Sunday lunch, you know, right on the water is is something that I, I think is underrated. What town would you catch the train to? I would go to Santa Marinella. It's about a 45-minute train. Ostia is the closest town. So if you really strap for time, that would be it. But it's not nearly as nice as Santa Marinella. The train lets you off. You're like a five-minute walk, if that to the beach and then right there there's a bunch of great restaurants you know or you could just pick up something go for a walk have a little picnic on the beach you know you could take a half hour train to so many places like uh the castelli romani or the hills outside of rome that's where the pope has his 
summer residence when it gets too hot. And um, like Frascati, for example, and you can go there, have lunch. There's some really good wine, grapes and uh, that are produced, wine that's produced that um, uh, right outside in Frascati. You can visit a vineyard. That's a nice day trip. You know, so all of those are like if you have more than, let's say, two days. Because if you just have two or three days, obviously, there's so much to do inside the city. But if you're spending four or five, it's nice to kind of get outside of the city as well, especially if it's hot in the summer. Obviously, we should talk about some food here. Yeah, yeah. Let's get to the food already. Come on. <laughs> How, <laughs> what are, what are some mistakes here? you think people make when, they, when they're looking for good food in Rome? Well, I mean, I think, unfortunately, some people, you know, like just assume that anywhere you go into is going to be good. And, you know, I mean, again, not to keep using the word that's all relative, but it's true in some ways that, you know, I, I don't think like there ain't like even the worst place isn't that bad. But if you really want to have those next level experiences, it does require, you know, some some homework. Probably these days, I mean, Rome, I mean, has always been a huge destination, of course, one of the most popular in the world. But last year, the numbers Rome saw were off the charts. So what that means is like, you have to make a reservation anywhere good these days. Yeah, and then also, yeah, maybe like, sacrificing some convenience if you're trying to like hit the sites the pantheon or the trevi fountain or the Colosseum, and then grab a bite very close well you know that's not gonna in most cases that's not gonna be the best option out there you might have to get you know we talked about like monteverde like getting outside of the most touristy parts to uh, to have some of the best food experiences. If you prioritize good food and drink, you're going to have to do your homework and you need to put that, prepare for that like you're preparing for some of the... Yeah, and I think more people obviously are doing that. Obviously, we run food tours. So what we try and do is on like a four-hour food tour, knowing that a lot of people only have a few days in a city like Rome, try and give you as many amazing food experiences in those four hours. So in those four hours, you're going to have some great street food. If it's a daytime tour, you're going to get into a market and have that experience. You're going to sit down on any of our tours in Italy for, or, or most of Italy for um, some really, you know, authentic homemade pasta and some of the classic recipes in Rome being carbonara, matriciana, caso pepe. But yeah, you absolutely, and a lot of people I was about to say are, I think, really planning. Oh, tonight, we have guests all the time. Oh, tonight we booked here, you know, where 10 years ago, I don't remember as many people kind of showing up, having their meals already kind of planned out in a way that people do now, which is, it's good because it usually means they're going to go to one of the better places, you know. Why? Um, can you shed any light on why it seems that a restaurant that has 20 or 30 small pictures up on the wall, usually of family members or former customers, is almost always a safe bet? <laughs> you know, it's not just uh, in Italy. I think, like, you know, usually it's more like I'm from Philadelphia, so the cheesesteak places and places like that. But 
all have, you know, the celebrity photos. And there's a reason why, you know, these places become institutions. But what you're talking about, um, yeah, there is a real correlation there. Um, there's some, uh, There's just something about it. Like, I don't think anyone's been brave enough to put up a bunch of fake picture. Like, that only yeah. comes with real credibility, I feel like. Well, I think when it when you're talking about celebrities and in a lot of Italian places, it's often, you know, Italian celebrities. So if you're kind of a tourist coming from the States, you're looking at these photos and you don't recognize anyone. But to your point, that's still just such a marker for that being a good place. Like all these people with their hand, you know, their arm around the owner or the chef, which sometimes is the same person. It's like, all right, this place must must really be good and inevitably it is it'd be funny if a place just open and doesn't have any kind of history accolades no credibility but right away starts asking people to put those photos it just doesn't seem to work that way you know you have to have a bit of history bit of credibility before someone who has a reputation is going to throw their photo on the wall and, and this know? isn't uh, just totally just an Italy thing. I mean, you see it yeah, everywhere, but no, there, there, it's just this certain sweet spot magic when you're like, I'm in good hands here. You know, if, if they're showing me all these people. Yeah, absolutely. Newspaper I mean, clippings, I, I, old newspaper clippings. Oh yeah. I mean, that stuff for sure. I mean, that's all, you know, those are all testimonials to a place's legitimacy and, you know, excellence. Pizza is a huge thing. All over Italy, but especially in Rome. All over the world. Roman pizza. Is it always being sold by the gram and all that? Or what? what's the real kind of, what makes Roman pizza different? Yeah, I think we've gotten to the point of the show. We got we to gotta talk pizza. Um, let's do it. So there's two kinds of pizza in Rome. All right. One is the kind you're referring to, which is pizza al taglio. You know, loosely translate pizza by the slice. Um, or sometimes it's called al metro or by the meter. And so that is, that's like your pizza shop pizza, not your sit down at a pizzeria, which we'll get to in a second. So the pizza Italio been around for a long time, but it's exploded even in the last like 10 years, I'd say, or maybe even five. So this is where you go into a little shop. They'll have like 10 to 15 different kinds. It's long little bit thicker, it's kind of shaped like oval shaped. And the whole idea of this pizza by the meter, by the slices, you can get as big or small of a slice as you want. So my kind of pro tip is get a, try as many ones that look interesting to you and just get small little pieces. So they'll do like a strip across kind of horizontally and you can have it just a couple inches thick and then they'll cut that into little squares. And on one little kind of plate, they'll give you, you can have six different kinds. And that's really nice. I mean, in New York, I love a, a New York slice, but there's one standard size. And so if you want to try two kinds, pepperoni and whatever, mushroom, you know, that's your lunch. Where here, you can literally have just as much pizza, but have eight kinds. And they're topped, I mean, a famous type of pizza Italios with potatoes, just potatoes and rosemary, something I'd never seen before coming to Rome. Most people we have on tour are quite surprised by that one. Really good. The pizza Italia, is, when it's done right, is crispy on the bottom. So a little bit of kind of char and then 
airy on top, you know, four different kinds of cheeses. You got your burrata on a lot with fresh cherry tomatoes, you know, pumpkin. I had one just yesterday, funny, a carbonata pizza. So the guanciale, the pork cheek, egg, pecorino, the sheep's milk cheese, all on a, a pizza al taglio. That was a first for me. So here, after 14 years, just yesterday, I had my first carbonata pizza. You know, another one I really like is uh, pumpkin on pizza with uh, pecorino cheese or sometimes with like a stracchino, which is like a white, more runny cheese. Pecorino cheese is so good. Yeah, so good. So pecor- there's a lot of different kinds. Tuscany's got its kind. In Rome, there's one kind that's used on all the pastas. It's called pecorino romano, no surprise. And that is an aged, very sharp, quite salty pecorino cheese. In general, sheep's milk cheeses are saltier yes. than than cow's milk and certainly than goat's milk, which is even kind of more light. So that's used on all the Roman pasta dishes. That's what really gives the salty taste as well as the, the guanciale, like the, the bacon product. Now, the, the Roman pizzerias, those typically only open at night. Those are wood fire ovens where the pizza taglio is electric or could be gas. Though super thin, I mean, now historically, traditionally, very, very thin. So that is your quintessential thin crust pizza. And when you order it, they serve you the full pie, often not cut. So you cut it yourself. And typically you order one pie per person. And most of the like historic pizzerias, the institutions like I Marmi is in Trastevere, Da Remo, Nuovo Mondo and uh, are two really good ones in uh, in Testaccio are these super thin and have just your standard toppings like prosciutto, prosciutto and mushrooms, mushrooms, uh, caprese, which means capricious. So it's like a little bit of everything, you know, egg and prosciutto and mushrooms and artichoke. But now there's a lot of like anywhere else, you know, the food scene has evolved. Now a lot of places are doing kind of a mix between the super thin crust Roman style and the Napolitano style, which is thicker, and doing kind of a hybrid. There's a place we go to on the tour, Pepo, in Trastevere, and they're a great example of kind of a hybrid. La Gata Mangiona is another one of these more gourmet kind of hybrid not as thick as in Naples, but not as thin as uh, here in Rome. So that's kind of the evening sit-down pizzeria option where the pizza by the slice you can get at any time. And there's usually nowhere to sit. They're all takeaway joints. So you just get it. There might be a little like high top outside. Otherwise, you're just walking and eating or sit down on a bench or something. The famous one is by one of the real celebrity kind of bread maker, pizza makers, Gabriele Bonci. He has he opened up a shop in Chicago. So his kind of institution is called Pizzadium. Every day, just the wildest topping combos. You go in there. I mean, that is a place where thank goodness you can try a lot of kinds because you look at every one and you're like, I want that. How often are you popping into an espresso bar just to tip one back? <laughs> tip one back. I'm usually tipping three back a day. In Rome, I mean, an espresso outside of the tourist area is a euro. Some places it's a euro 10. It's been a euro. I've been here for 14 years. And, you know, so that could be either just 
a shot of espresso, what here you would just call a cafe, a cafe macchiato, which is a little bit of foam milk. And that's a euro, you know, so like, for me to make a coffee at home when I can go across the street, not to mention it's like a nice break if I work at home. So like just to pop across the street, get some air, talk to the, you know, the barista or a cappuccino. I mean, you want to talk about the best value anywhere in the world. The quality of coffee here, there's nothing less than like a seven, you know, and then a lot of places are a nine or a ten. And a cappuccino is a euro twenty which is the equivalent of a dollar 40 or a dollar, depending on the exchange rate at the time. You know, if you came to Italy just to drink like, you know, five coffees a day, you'd get your money's worth. In addition to having the drink, you're getting that experience. It couldn't be more authentic. Traditionally, and in a lot of neighborhoods, you know, if you want to drink, the place where you're going for your morning cappuccino is the same place where you're going for your spritz or your Negroni at night. That's why they're all called bars because they're licensed, you know, to sell alcohol. And But yeah, I mean, to your point, go there in the morning, not at 11. I know you're on vacation, you want to sleep in. But one morning, wake up, go in there at like 8 a.m. when these places are packed and just observe it, take it in besides drinking whatever you decide to order. But just to see people, they come in, they order it, you know, they take three sips of their cappuccino, put the glass back on the bar, they're out of there. Even if you don't understand what people are saying, just seeing the small talk and the gestures with the barista, watching how this guy or, or gal can manage like 30 orders at once, you know, there's no writing anything down. There's no, there's no tablets. It's like everyone's screaming out their order. Somehow they retain it all. They've got usually six going at once. That's what's so cool to watch, you know? Italy is one of the places in Europe where honestly just people watching is is an event. Yeah. And you just feel like, just you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm actually in this scene right here. And also yeah. if, you, if you don't like espresso at home or have thought you're not an espresso person, try it in Italy, it's a totally different animal. Yeah, there's really no options. <laughs> if you want your coffee while you're in Italy, well, that's what you're drinking. So the other thing that people really are surprised, like a cappuccino here, it's a shot of espresso. It's still quite small. So like by, you know, American Starbucks standards. It's a baby chino by most yeah, standards. Yeah, it's a baby chino. And that's why, you know, Romans or Italians in general will have like eight shots of espresso a day because it's not a lot you know you see people with their giant mugs you know their 20 ounces or whatever they are that's a lot of coffee we're here if you're just doing these little shots of espresso you know in terms of just volume you're not consuming as much as one of those massive mugs that you see so what about you've been out all day let's say you started your day with an espresso you've done your people watching you've seen a couple sites but then you've lingered over a long lunch somewhere in Trastevere or Testaccio. You've seen a little bit of Rome at night. Maybe you've had a couple of drinks. Where are you going for a late night snack? Well, here's something that very few people know, which still just blows my mind. So I think everywhere in the world, at least where I've traveled uh, or lived, late night in the exact scenario you're describing, you've had some drinks, you want something greasy, you know, whether that's a greasy slice you're in New York or Philly or 
so many other places. Some places like Iceland I was in, you know, you're going for hot dogs. Other places, it's a gyro like in Greece or a kebab in London. You know, so many other places, it's going to a kebab shop. In Italy or Rome specifically, they go for a cornetto. A cornetto is like the Italian version of a croissant. So you have these cornetteria, like these cornetto places, which are really just like a pastry shop, but they, they really cater to the night crowd that open up at night and people will go and that's what they'll eat late at night, which is just bizarre to me. I mean, part of it is there isn't a real drinking culture here. So uh, how late is a pizza place open or like one of these spots that does like the soup lead, the little fried thing? Yeah. So the, the fried rice balls, which are different than the arancini, which you have in Sicily, they're not as big. In Rome, and this is just a Roman thing, you know, I mentioned Italy, 20 regions, all with very different cuisine. In Rome, it's fried like a risotto rice, a borio can be used. Sometimes in a meat sauce, these days, less places are using a meat sauce, a tomato-based sauce filled with mozzarella, rolled in breadcrumbs, deep fried. That would be the perfect late night snack. Like a lot of places, like the most famous one, Isupli and Trastevere, that's open till 11. Okay. But yeah, so that, that might be open till 10 or 11. 11 probably on Fridays and Saturdays. That's an option, but not quite what I was referring to after midnight snack. I mean, can you just believe, I mean, obviously you've been at the forefront of this with eating Europe. You have, you're in 10 cities now across Europe? We're now in 14. So oh. we just opened up four new cities uh, just two months ago. Sorry to sell you short. <laughs> no, that's okay. Todd off the press. I'm happy to announce that here. We just added uh, Venice, Milan, Palermo. So three big, incredible Italian food cities and Athens down in Greece. Amazing that just in the last, you know, 15 years, we'll say, 20 maybe, just how food has just become so synonymous with travel. Like it is so intertwined. Can you imagine it ever going back? No, I don't think it's going back. When you go abroad, like it's not only just checking out certain places, but it's also getting kind of insight. What is food culture in Rome? You know, we talked about the bar. We just talked about late night being, you know, these sweet pastries. I mean, these are all the little insights that you want to get when you travel, you know, broadly about culture and specifically within culture about food, because that's such a, a big part and an accessible part about learning about a culture is how do people eat? What do they eat? It's been an explosion. Food tours specifically, when we started, just for perspective, 13 years ago when I started eating Europe, there was no one else doing food tours in Rome. And now so many food tours everywhere. And just the market has grown, the appetite, you know, for food tours, pun intended, uh, has grown so much, you know, everyone's looking for these kind of activities, same with cooking classes, wine tastings, whiskey trails in places like Scotland, I mean, beer tours, you know, these are the kind of experiences that people want to have. And these organized experiences kind of ensure that you're going to go to good places. I can definitely say that I always wanted to travel and would have wanted to travel, I think, but traveling thought of like it was especially in Europe maybe it was a bit dry in the like you know museums and art and all that and that's amazing stuff but it was once that food and drink got introduced I was like okay like 
I'm in for this. I think kind of what you do in a destination, the kind of tours, activities, just even the, just the eating, the not necessarily planned, you know, that's the best stuff. Those are the experiences you remember most, you know? And the other thing I, I often say is as incredible, obviously going to the Colosseum, being on the canals in, in Venice or, you know, seeing the Duomo in, in Florence. I mean, all of those things are David, you know, are incredible and must-dos, but you don't hear people, those aren't the stories you tell, you know? The stories you tell are, oh my God, I went into this random trattoria in this small town in Umbria or on a some random street in Rome. Sat down and this woman who I think was like husband-wife duo and I couldn't, they didn't even have a menu. She just served me this thing, you know, that's the thing. And I didn't even know what I was eating. And afterward, I found out maybe it was something like tripe. You know, afterward, I found out it was that. I would have never ordered that, but it was actually delicious. Or, you know, or it might be an organized thing. I learned how to make gnocchi, and I didn't realize how easy it was, but it was so cool. And then we made this pesto out of pistachio nuts. I mean, those are the stories I think you come back and you tell more so than I went to the Coliseum and it blew my mind. Well, I'd say long live food and drink travel. I guess we'd be remiss if we didn't cover a little bit of the Eating Europe tours in Rome. All right, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do a little plug. Because, you know, and besides just kind of plugging the business, I mean, as I said before, I mean, what we do, we're really trying to give people these kind of memorable food experiences and make sure that, you know, in these, in four hours with us, you're going to be able to tick off your list. You know, I tried carbonata, cacio pepe. I had a souple, which we talked about. I tried a fried artichoke, which is another like must have in Rome, Jewish style artichoke. So all of our tours, you know, do that. You know, the difference is we have the Twilight Trastevere, which is in Trastevere, the neighborhood we touched on quite a bit. We have Taste of Testaccio, which instead is right across the river. It's a different neighborhood with a very different history, has one of the best outdoor food markets in the city. Um, so it hits that, has some really interesting historical places that really integrate with the food story. So there's that tour. We have a tour through the Jewish ghetto. A lot of the most iconic dishes in Rome were introduced by the Jews who have been living here going way back to ancient Roman times. And like the fried artichoke, souple, for example, the fried rice balls we talked about. So we have a tour that starts in the Jewish ghetto and kind of meanders across the river into Trastevere. And then last year, we started doing some food tours on golf on a golf cart. It's really cool, bright orange eating Europe golf cart. And what's cool about that is you can actually see a lot more. We take you up to the Janiculo, which we talked about a couple of times. It's an incredible view of the city and pop open a bottle of Prosecco as you're looking out at the city at night, totally illuminated, and then drive down into Testaccio, go into the Jewish ghetto. You can hit like four of these incredible neighborhoods in a few hours because, you know, you're not doing it on foot. If you want to get your hands dirty, I was going to say we do some cooking classes here in Rome and Florence, as well as um, we're going to start doing some pizza making classes. So that's fun if you actually want to learn 
some of these things and bring those skills back home, uh, as well as obviously eat what you just made. We're doing all kinds of cool stuff. We'd love to have people on tour. Yeah, we're always adding new places, always out there. This is the hardest part of the job is having to try all these, constantly try new places and uh, find out kind of who's doing things that are a little bit different and add them to the tours. All right, Kenny, thanks uh, so much for uh, chatting with us today. And you got I think you got a lot of people fired up for the next trip to Rome and Europe in general. Eating Europe, look them up. Thanks so much, Scott. It was it was a blast. And uh, hopefully we'll get to eat together one of these days. So looking forward to that. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that food focused trip to Rome and can use some of those tips on your next visit to the city. As always, I've put a link in the episode description that will give you some more details on the places that were talked about on the show including all the great pizza spots Kenny mentioned and that beach town on the coast he recommends. If you're enjoying Rails Ales and Old Towns, it would be awesome if you could subscribe or leave a review as those things really help. And if you'd like the occasional hit of European travel inspiration in between episodes, feel free to give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook at Rails Ales Old Towns. Talk to you from Europe on the next episode. <laughs>